Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Ambassador Kevin O'Malley was born and raised in St. Louis to a large Irish family. He attended seminary, but decided it wasn't right for him, and instead got his B.A. in 1970 and his J.D. in 1973 from St. Louis University School of Law. He joined the Department of Justice working as a special attorney in organized crime and racketeering section. He joined the Department of Justice working as a special attorney in the organized crime and racketeering section from 1974 to 1979. He was an assistant United States attorney from 1979 to 1983. Thereafter, he joined private practice for a medical malpractice defense and white-collar criminal defense firm, where he tried many, many cases to verdict, but also found time to teach at the St. Louis University Law School and author a nine-volume treatise on the federal jury practice and instructions. He remained in private practice until his nomination to become ambassador to Ireland in 2014 by President Barack Obama. He served in that honored position until 2017. Since that time, he has returned to St. Louis and to St. Louis University Law School as a professor. In 2019, he was appointed as the ambassador-in-residence and professor of practice with the Center for International and Comparative Law at St. Louis University Law School. His work extends past legal and academic endeavors and into his community at large, where in 2022, he was appointed to the Port Authority Board and now serves as the elected chair of the St. Louis County Port Authority Board of Commissions. Ambassador O'Malley has received many awards and honors over his distinguished career, including the Distinguished Service Award from the United States Attorney General, the Award of Honor from the Lawyers Association of St. Louis, World Trade Center St. Louis Global Ambassador Award, and the St. Louis University School of Law Fleur de Lis Hall of Fame. And of course, membership into the American College of Trial Attorneys. It is my pleasure to spend some time with Ambassador Kevin O'Malley. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, Amy. I want to start with your background. You grew up in a large Irish Catholic family here in St. Louis. And I want to ask you, what about growing up in that family, in that environment, put you on the path that you started on? I didn't know this at the time, it's only by getting older and having a chance to reflect on it. But I think the real answer to your question is it gave me a place. I knew then, although I couldn't articulate it, I knew then that I was loved and that I belonged somewhere. And I think that gave me a grounding that has been valuable to me in my life journey. And it's something that I can honestly say every day that I am thankful for. I think of my parents, my aunts and my uncles, lots and lots of cousins, and those people were part of forming me, whoever I am. And I always knew that's where my family was. Most of my family lives in St. Louis. And though I've moved from St. Louis many times, but but only in the service of either my church or my country, this is where I belong, and that family has been a real rooting for me, where this is, no matter the slings and arrows of life, and everybody has ups and downs in their life, that I always knew that I belong somewhere, and that was with that big, noisy Irish Catholic family. I know that your grandparents came directly from Ireland. Tell us about that journey. My grandparents came to the United States in 1910. 
my, my paternal grandparents, Elizabeth and uh, Michael O'Malley, and they came with seven children. The, they gave me the manifest from the ship that my grandparents was on, the, uh, the folks in Ireland while I was serving there as ambassador. And it lists their names, Michael and Elizabeth O'Malley, and my seven oldest aunts and uncles who were born at the time they made the journey to the U.S. And they also had to list their possessions in those days. And they, it was been, it's been translated to me that it was about $20 is what they had. So my grandfather was a laborer. He was not literate. They were starving to death on the west coast of Ireland. And they didn't have a whole lot of choices. And the United States was their best one. So they arrived in New York on the boat, which is the way the journey always went from Ireland. And they decided immediately there were too many Irish in New York. So not having Google to check on these things, they thought, well, let's go to Chicago and there won't be so many Irish. (laughs) So that's where they were. And then they they proceeded to have eight more children. My father was one of 15. He was the firstborn here in the U.S., and my grandmother was barely five feet tall. Mm. She ran the place, and that's, that's, that, that was their journey. And I imagine that journey and having that history in your family really fueled you to love the idea of continuing that service continuing to be a strong person in the community. They just, it sounds to me, having that kind of ambition to believe that you could leave your country and sail across the ocean with seven children, but to believe in each other enough to know that you could get through it and then to continue to flourish to the point where their grandson became the ambassador to Ireland. I'm just so inspired by that idea. How do you think they would feel about where you ended up? My, my parents um, died before the ambassadorship arrived. My mother was also Irish. Her folks had arrived a little bit earlier than my dad's folks. I think that would have been very hard for my, especially my paternal grandparents, to comprehend what happened. When I gave my first big speech in Ireland, I was introduced by a gentleman, and he had done the genealogic research. And so he said, so Michael and Elizabeth O'Malley came to 1910 and the seven kids and no money and eight more kids. And then he said, so you went, your family went, Ambassador, from economic refugees to the personal representative of the president of the country that gave them refuge in only two generations. What a great country you come from. And that's true, that's abundantly true. It's in my story, it's in millions and millions of stories. We live in a wonderful country that has tremendous opportunity. My grandparents and parents took advantage of that. My father, he was in his junior year of high school when the stock market crashed. So he didn't have a chance. All the kids had to quit school and try to earn the nickels and dimes to keep an immigrant family together in Chicago during the Depression. So he didn't have a chance to finish high school, which was always a deep regret he had. But he he wanted all of us, all of his children, to get an education. And that is a theme that I see around 
the community in St. Louis and in other communities where there's a pretty, pretty large population of immigrants. And you took that very seriously. Tell us about your educational journey. So I went to parochial school here in, in St. Louis, and then at a tender age, I decided that I wanted to study for the priesthood. That's not an unusual, was not an unusual thing at the time, and certainly not unusual in an Irish Catholic family. There's almost always one boy that goes off. So I went, I moved away from home, went to high school in a small Catholic seminary in, in Cape Girardeau called St. Vincent's College, right on the banks of the Mississippi River, and fell in love with that life. It was absolutely spectacular. I had, the school was, there were never more than 100 of us. It was very small. The teachers were generally excellent. The example was wonderful. And then I continued on after graduating from high school, went into the next phase of the discernment process, the training process, which is called the novitiate, which was two years essentially of more like a monastic existence than, than that'd be the easiest way to describe it. And I love that. It was just, I prospered. I, the, the education was phenomenal. I thought the training was good. It was a very, it was very much a part of who I am today. And what went into the decision to transition from that to college so and law school? One of the, being a priest is a job that you need to get an A in. You, as C students don't kind of, C, a C grade doesn't count. I, I was not a C student, but it, and part of the seminary process is called formation and to decide, is this really what you're supposed to do? Is this where, is this your vocation in life? Is this what you were put on this earth to do? And I determined after a lot of thinking about it that I just wasn't going to be a good priest. And it's just not, I don't think I would have been a bad priest. I just don't think <laughs> I would have been a good one. And I don't think that's a job that you want to do in a mediocre fashion. I, I love the, I love the, my, the people I was studying with, the, the teachers that we had, and I've remained close to them my entire life. I was married by one of the priests who taught me in the seminary. Our children were baptized by priests that, that I had in the seminary. But I, that, I didn't have the right skill set, I don't think, and I needed to find where I belonged, and so that was the law. You've spoken of that time very fondly. And oftentimes when you have an experience in your life that really forms you and you take that with you, what about what you learned in the seminary and in that time frame have you taken with you into your other endeavors? People are precious. E even in prosecuting people and putting them in prison, uh, there's always a story. And some of the people that you meet in the, the world of organized crime prosecutions, you have to dig pretty damn deep to, to find the story. But there's almost always a spouse or children. There, I think that the I think that kind of life, the monastic, the seminary sort of life, helped me in to form a view that each person walking on this earth has a purpose, and sometimes they don't they don't live out that purpose. Sometimes it's not their fault. Sometimes it is, but whatever it is, there's a plan here, and and we have to be open to what that plan is. It sounds like you're describing empathy. I think people are set on a course of empathy, depending on who they are and how they were born and those type of things. I have to believe that it can also be taught. 
and practiced. What do you think? Yeah, it, it could be. And going back to your first question, what did I learn from that family? And clearly, it wasn't growing up in the 40s and 50s is different than growing up today. There was maybe a little bit more tough love going on. But no, but nonetheless, we knew that we were valued. We knew that we were part of something and that we were destined for something. So I think that's, I hope I'm that empathetic. I've been on every side of a lawsuit, there's another side. And we sometimes in our competitive juices are flowing. <laughs> we can forget that. But I've always tried to to keep that in mind, that there is somebody there with a difference of opinion, and that opinion may be reasonable, and I should try to keep my eye on it. So you mentioned prosecuting. You were in the DOJ? Yes. Pretty much right out of law school. Right out of law school. First job. Prosecuting organized crime. There was a small group in the Department of Justice at that time in the criminal division of the Department of Justice called the Organized Crime and Racketeering Section, and that's where I wanted to be, and I was lucky enough to get there right out of school. How did you get that position right out of school? There's a little bit of a story to that. I don't know precisely. I'd like to think that I was a good student, and I was on the Law Journal and all that. I graduated from St. Louis U Law School, which is not a first-tier school. I had clerked for the Department of Justice during one of my summers. And it so happened that the organized crime section of the Justice Department, which was really established by, by Attorney General Robert Kennedy, who, when he came to the Department of Justice from his job on Capitol Hill, brought with him a number of, the, a number of his colleagues, all of whom happened to be Irish Catholics mm -hmm. from Boston. I would like to think that my my academic record and my work at the at the Department of Justice as a as a summer law clerk was the deciding factor, but I think my name had something to do with it. The O'Malley factor. I think that maybe some folks up there might have said this guy looks like he might fit in with us. That was a big break for me. I was very happy to have that job, and I view that as my launching pad. Do you have any? stories you can share with us about that time. I know you were stationed in different cities. Yeah, in those days, the rule was you could not live in your hometown and do this sort of stuff. So we were all a little bit of vagabonds running around. So I was, we all started in Washington, D.C. for a while and then went off into one of the 18 offices they had across the country. And I wanted to do Las Vegas because that was big leagues of, of where the game was being played. And so that was run out of Los Angeles. So I put in for the Los Angeles office and got that. And, and so tried my first cases in Los Angeles and then Las Vegas, and then also did some work in Arizona. Any particular defendants or crimes or anything that comes to mind as being particularly interesting? It sounds all interesting to me. I was thinking the other, the other day of a of an incident. It's really more a story about my inexperience than it. So the rule at that time, or the custom at that time, was you would try two, maybe three cases in the second chair, and then you were thrown out of the nest and you were on your own. The theory was if they're going to pay you a salary, then you better go earn it. And there wasn't a whole lot of carrying briefcases. So I had tried two cases in the second chair, was going to try the third case in the second chair, and each case got more serious. This, the third case was a multi-defendant, 14 defendants, and a wiretap, which is kind of, was 
complicated. Anyway, this is going to be my third trial. The trial was to start on Monday in Los Angeles, and the Thursday before the Monday trial, the fellow who was in the first chair got in a very serious car accident, okay. and uh, he didn't die, but he was very close to it. And so I was told to go over to see the judge and to get a continuance. So the trial judge at the time was a, was a fellow by the name of Manuel Real, who has since passed away. And he was, as a, let's say strict would be the word I'd use publicly. Is that a friendly, is that a Yeah, he, nice he word? was something. He was a very good judge, but he just didn't tolerate anything. So in those days in the Central District of California, the there, there were no, there was very little done on paper. It was, you, you filed your paper, but you had to show up. And so the courtrooms were generally full. I got myself on the docket and went over there. And I had, this is, I tried, second shared two cases. So it came my turn to, to make my plea. And the judge said, go ahead. And so I told him and I, my, my very sad story about but my friend who now crashed up in his car on Mulholland Drive, and I was getting emotional myself and uh, describing it. And so I ended my plea with, and so therefore, Your Honor, the United States demands a continuance. Ooh. So a hush fell over the courtroom as, for those of us who live in, in, in Tornado Row here, when a tornado is about to come, it gets very quiet. It got very quiet in this courtroom. And the, ju and the other lawyers, there are probably 25 or 30 lawyers in this courtroom, and they all parted. They all went to the corner of the court. <laughs> as far away from you. Yeah, this was not going to be good. And <laughs> and so Judge Real, who was, who terrorized old and young lawyers, looked down over his reading glasses at me and said, I'll, I'll never forget this if I live to be 200. He said, son, are you a lawyer? Oh, no. There's two answers to that. <laughs> neither, neither was good. But I'd spent all this time and money learning to be a lawyer. So I said, yes, Your Honor, I'm a lawyer. He said, Monday morning, 9 o'clock. Wow. And that was my first trial in the first chair. I got somebody to help me. To, so it was 14 defendants and a wiretap. And me and Judge Real, who was actually quite pleasant to me during the trial. He understood where well, I was. nice. And he, he, he did not, I don't think I got any rulings that I shouldn't have gotten, but he was clearly sympathetic to the plight that I was in. Was there ever a time in this era investigating and prosecuting corruption and racketeering organized crime that you were worried or frightened? This to me sounds like a really precarious area. It, I think certainly human beings are going to think about that sort of thing, especially as I, my wife and I started to have children. Yes. But it Really, my sympathies go, we were to the mafia, we were an occupational hazard. We were just, in everybody's life, a little bit of unhappiness was going to flow, and we were the unhappiness. And so I, and it, we just wouldn't have done any, wouldn't have, wouldn't have helped their cause at all to do anything to us. But I do think that the people that followed us that had to do the South American drug lords and some of the Asian gangs and then the Russian group, I think they were at risk, and there were several assistant U.S. attorneys who were killed during the process. I think that the or, or the mafia had a set of rules that made it relatively predictable okay. and therefore made it more vulnerable. I think that the drug lords don't seem to have any rules, and it, it's more of a more of a massacre. In your time investigating and prosecuting the mafia, 
Do you have any fun stories from that? And I use fun loosely. <laughs> fun, uh, yeah, fun used loosely. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you that we we in the organized crime section with, with the FBI, were, we did a lot of surveillance on a fellow by the name of Joseph Banana, who was a leader of one of the five organized crime families from New York who had retired in Tucson. And Mr. Badano was very clever and very hard to surveil and almost impossible to to obtain a wiretap because he used different payphones across town. In those days, the law didn't allow us to do that sort of thing. The Bureau decided that one of the best ways to maybe keep an eye on Bonanno was to pick up his trash. Twice a week, people dressed as the Tucson Refuse Company, whatever the name of it was, I've forgotten, would go by Joseph Bonanno's house and pick up his trash. And there were his notes in there that he had written in longhand in Italian. And we would put them, he would tear them up and we'd put them back together again and sent them back to the cryptology lab at the Bureau. And they would translate them and send them back to us. And in the meantime, a reporter in Phoenix for the Arizona Republic was bombed, was killed. And before he died, he said that the mafia was responsible for his, for his death. And so as a result of that, a number of reporters, almost 100, moved to Arizona, and they did their own investigation of organized crime in Arizona. Wow. That was, they was, that was my jurisdiction at the time. They decided these editors, and it was called the Investigative Editors and Reporters of America, and they decided to do a story one day in the life of Joe Bonanno. So they all, a bunch of them went down to Tucson and started doing a neighborhood canvas, knocking on doors, and seeing what was it like to live in the neighborhood with a mafia don. And they knocked on the lady, the door of a woman who lived directly across the street from Mr. Bonanno, and asked her, what's it like to live across the street from a mafia don? And she said, I'm not going to talk to you about it, but why don't you call the FBI? Because they've been picking up his trash for two years. <laughs> it's so much for... Being fly. You know, we thought we were pretty <laughs> clever, but she, she was nosier than we were clever. <laughs> How did your practice change when you came back to St. Louis and began working for the U.S. Attorney's Office? My my agreement with the U.S. attorney to come to come back, and I really we really wanted to come back. We had our two children born while we lived on the West Coast, and my parents were still alive, and my wife's parents were still alive here in St. Louis, and we wanted our kids to 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 know their grandparents like we had. My agreement with the U.S. attorney was that I just didn't want to do anything that even looked like organized crime. Just to just move into something different. So I really did primarily white collar financial fraud and that sort of that sort of thing for the next several years. And that I was happy with that. What went into your decision to move into private practice? I had been 10 years with the Justice Department, and that's a that was a pretty long tenure in those days. Some people were starting now to make it a career, which was unheard of when I started. It mm. was generally two or three years in and out. But there, there comes a time where it's just other considerations come into play. And so it was just time. And in that time, you were defending medical malpractice cases. You still had some white-collar criminal defense cases. Did you enjoy that time as well? Yes. Left the government and went into private practice. I had assumed that I had tried my last interesting case. I thought that the rock'em sock'em of organized crime and financial crime was, that was as good as it was going to get. And then I got, by accident, uh, in some ways, 
who got involved in a practice that centered on medical malpractice and uh, the defense side of that. And I found that absolutely fascinating. Is you, every day you're learning something new. You come into the office and you're earning your living learning things. In the medical profession, in medical malpractice cases, I think, are so different in that the plaintiff in a medical malpractice case, as you know better than I do, Amy, is in, injured, violated, offended that they didn't get the care, that they trusted somebody and it didn't work out. On the physician side, they think this is just a conspiracy to make their lives miserable and nobody's perfect and all that sort of thing. So you have enough emotion in a courtroom just from the plaintiff and the defendant to make the case interesting. And then because of the law where you need an expert witness to, the plaintiff needs an expert witness to make a case and the defendant then needs an expert witness to rebut the plaintiff's expert, you, you put on top of this emotional milieu uh, intellectual challenges. And and I know dealing with experts is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Talking to them, learning from them, learning the pitfalls of where you're at, learning which way to go with the case. So a medical malpractice case, they generally take five or six days to try. Uh, they're almost always fascinating, and they involve real people with real issues from both sides. So it was far from the mafia stuff was far from the last interesting case I tried. I do love the medical malpractice cases that I have. And in fact, you and I had one against each other a number of years ago. We did indeed. And I do love the learning aspect of it. You've mentioned a couple of times learning to love, whether it's learning in the seminary learning about the racketeering and now the medicine part of all these cases. That strikes me as always looking for something interesting, always looking for the next thing. How were you able to transition that, if you were, from a private practice of law in St. Louis, Missouri, to ambassador of Ireland? That's an interesting question. I haven't never thought about that before. The jobs are very similar. Okay. As a lawyer, we are salespeople. My, my father, who never had a chance to finish high school, would come down. So when I returned to St. Louis as an AUSA, he would sometimes come to trial and watch. And he was, he was fascinated by all what was going on. And I would tell him time and time again, Dad, I'm just doing the same thing you did. Okay. He was involved in sales his whole life. He said, no, I'm doing it. I am doing my sales with some really funky rules of evidence and procedure, but it's the same thing. I have a point of view here that this person is good for this crime. And that's the point of view I'm selling. And the other fellow is selling a different point of view that I haven't met the burden of proof. And as ambassador, as an ambassador, you are selling your country, mm. and and that's harder in some countries than others. In Ireland, it's a pretty easy lift, but you're representing your country. When I would stand in court as a federal prosecutor, when you introduce yourself to the court, it's hello, I'm Kevin O'Malley here for the United States, and it's the same thing mm. as when I was introduced as the ambassador to Ireland, the United States ambassador to Ireland. That was my role. I've I thought they're pretty much the same. The, the role of ambassador was a lot easier 
It's a wonderful job. If there is a better job than being the United States ambassador to Ireland, I have never heard of it. It yeah. is. It was quite a gig. So tell us how you ended up there. Give us that. Sure. Give us that journey. So it's a little bit of a story. I'll, in 2007, 2006 maybe, I, so I, you talked about my Irish Catholic family, and if you really finished the adjectives right, it would be Irish Catholic Democrat. <laughs> yeah. So that's just the way... That just the way we were. I'm very familiar. But I was not a George Bush hater. I, I, I didn't have, I couldn't work up the, but I wanted something different. I wanted some, I thought we should have a president more engaged. My natural inclination was to look at Democrats, but I, I thought the country was in a position. Anyway, I looked at the books that Hillary Clinton had written, campaign books that she wrote, that McCain wrote, that Huckabee wrote that Obama wrote, and Obama's book was very well written. And I assumed that he had then found at least a good writer, Mm -hmm. a Ted Sorensen or something, said, and it was later uh, undisputed, that he wrote the book himself. He lived in Washington, his family lived in Chicago, and at night he would do that, which is how I wrote my first book. So I was, I clued into that. Then I read his autobiographical book, Dreams from My Father. And I was about halfway through that when I decided this is my guy. And I was able to arrange a meeting with him in Chicago and met and began probably before there was much of a campaign, before there was any Secret Service, before there was any of the falderall that makes getting to know a candidate or getting to know the staff difficult. So that's where it was. And then I, during the 08 election, during most of 2007, I worked as a volunteer, never had a title or a job or I never got paid. It was, I was just a volunteer and worked, spent a lot of time in Iowa and moved around the country as he progressed with the campaign. And then when he won, I was done. I got what I wanted. I was really proud of the country that they had made this, this big shift and that was sort of it. And then the rest just, the rest was all gravy. So you took off over a year, essentially, from your private practice. This was in the 2007? 2007 was the big year. I never missed a trial setting. Wow. It was, it was in, in this maybe <laughs> it was the biggest, the two biggest years of my production, okay, were 08 and 12. Wow. The two years that I was working on the campaign. How do you square that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and, it, and maybe somebody else, maybe other people have had that same experience, but I never missed a trial date. It was, it made it more difficult because I would ha- I had, I was doing a little bit of traveling around and the camp, the campaigns in those, this last one with, between President Trump and, and now President Biden was virtual and really quite difficult. The other ones were actually, they were enjoyable. The people in Iowa, and as I said, I hope we don't ever do this again because it's not the right way to do it. But the people in Iowa took it seriously. It was not a flim-flam thing. They wanted, they dug into this. They liked their position as first in the country. You mentioned a minute ago about authoring books. Yes. And you have your own book that you've authored. Tell us about that. So when I was working in the organized crime section, one of the things that we did were we would travel. And we, I've tried cases in, in various jurisdictions in the, on the West Coast primarily. And it was a lot of time away from home and a lot of time at night. So I 
this sounds it sounds insane now, but at that time in criminal cases, people would do jury instructions every case as if it was the first case they'd ever seen. And so there there weren't circuit model instructions in those days. There w- there was a book that was used. It was written by it was written by a judge by the name of Devitt and a professor by the name of Blackmar, and I would try to arrange that in such a way that each U.S. attorney's office and therefore each, the judges would have a more organized way to approach this case rather than approach this issue of jury instructions rather than every time it was like a brand new experience. So West Publishing, it was called West at the time, now it's Thomson Reuters, wanted to modernize that. They wanted to revise some of this work and they asked very they were very sensitive to the demands of judges they asked a bunch of judges what they thought about that and my name kept coming up as well there's this guy who does this so west asked me if i would get involved in that process and i agreed to do that and that's that was at that time the we had a two volume set and then we made it a three volume set and it's now a nine volume set and it's it was some judges in the third circuit wrote an opinion referring to it as the Bible. Nice. And so that was nice marketing for us. <laughs> I'd say so. The text part gives a someone who's working in a new area of law a real quick uptake on what this is about. And I've taught it in every trial ed course I've ever taught was really you need to look at what's the jury going to be told at the end of the deal because that's really all that's important. You think you've got some hot piece of evidence, but if it doesn't prove or disprove something that the jury has to find, it's not all that it's not all that important. So that's how jury instructions have been part of my life since then. Fantastic. The process of becoming an ambassador, I feel like that's secretive, not easy to know about. Let's fix that. Let's do it. Tell me, tell us about this process. Did you express interest in it? Did someone approach you? How did it begin? So it, after President Obama won, there was talk of joining the administration. Okay. The logical thing would be as a judge. I would be a terrible, terrible judge. Why? It would be very hard for me to deal with someone who wasn't prepared. There aren't as many trials as there used to be, and it's a lot of paperwork. And anyway, it didn't do much for me. Okay, got it. Then the thought was, okay, what about going back to the department? Going back to the Department of Justice. The best job, I think many of your listeners, fellows who've been federal prosecutors understand, the really best job in the Department of Justice is a line prosecutor. The further you go up the chain, the more policy and memo-driven you are. That didn't do much for me. So the thought was, what, what about being an ambassador? And I didn't, hadn't really ever thought about that. Living here in the middle of the country, it's not, I'd never met one, and I didn't know much about it. But I said, that, that sounded interesting. And so that was put on the table, but not, uh, not serious for a while. Okay. And when did that change? After the re-election in 2012, I think that that thing that things began to change and Ireland. So let me jump to the end of the story first. If people want to be an ambassador, that's one of the places that it's in the top five clearly. And for an Irish American, that's sure. one and there is no two. Uh, so I never, but I never sought that out. 
because Ireland had always been reserved for a very wealthy donor or a wealthy bundler. And I get that. That's It makes sense. So I ne- that was never anything that, that was in the realm of possibility, in my view. And the joke that I thought it was a joke anyway, <laughs> was Malta. Oh. Small little island, English-speaking, Mediterranean, was not a resume enhancer for all of the guys who were looking for to get an ambassadorship. So that was my... I thought joke with the West Wing. <laughs> so when, so I was shocked. I was, I was not shocked that there was a, a that ambassadorship was offered. A- after a while, I mean, that certain signs start to indicate that's what's going. On. But for Ireland, I was absolutely I'm what fell off the chair. Wow! Because that that just wasn't something that was ever in my in my thought process. And that, as you say. That is not a small country, not much going on. That's a big deal. How did you prepare yourself? So the State Department has a school, lovingly referred to as Charm School, <laughs> but it really had, doesn't have anything to do with charm or which fork to use or that sort of thing. It's really, for people who have not been inside the federal government, it's really a primer in how all this works. So the embassy, an embassy... Ireland, for example, has about 250 employees, and half of those are Irish and half are American. And they come from, and Ireland would have a a greater percentage of Irish people than Sudan would, for example. Okay. But those employees, the American employees, come from every facet of the federal government, from the State Department, the Commerce Department, the Agriculture Department, the CIA, the FBI. All of these people work in in it. in an embassy. And the ambassador's job, each of those agencies, we look, we outsiders look at the federal government as a monolith. It's all just the feds. But believe me, the Department of Agriculture works entirely differently than the CIA. Okay. These people, and they, to get assigned to an embassy, generally you have some experience, you've been around for a while, and you've adopted that culture of your agency, and you've been pretty good at it, or you wouldn't have risen to that level. So the job of the ambassador on the inside, the inside part of the job, is to make a symphony out of that cacophony. Because when you get these people all together, it's just different. They're just a different different way of doing things. Now, because the organized crime section of the Justice Department, my my launching pad, had we, we had agents from all of the different federal law enforcement agencies assigned to us. I was used to that a little bit. Okay. Dealing with eight in those days, the alcohol, the Division of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the IRS, or the FBI, or the Secret Service, they were all different personalities, and you had to try to make it work. Same with the embassy. So that's the job of the ambassador on the inside, taking care of the government business, is is making that all make sense. And the ambassador is the highest ranking officer for the United States government in that jurisdiction, in that country. The rank is some, somewhere like two or three-star general or something when they translate it over to, over to the military talk. And that's what you do on the inside. The outside is you're representing your country in, in, with the government and the other ambassadors from the other countries. The nomination process. Yes. After you were aware that you got the call yes. and Ireland was on the table, I I can only imagine that was a really exciting time. Yes. I think you it was. almost fell off the chair. 
Yes, it was a pretty exciting day. Absolutely. Then you have to put in some work. Did the charm school part come before or after the Senate confirmation? So what happens is the get the call, and then you get about 500 pounds of paperwork. Okay. So you have to do that first. The vetting comes before anything. So when the president get the call, and then it's it's radio silence for a while. You can't say anything to anybody. I ask for permission to tell my wife and my children. And the call is... I'm looking to nominate you as ambassador of Ireland. It's certainly, it's inferred enough, but you have to pass the vet. You have to get okay. through the FBI and and the White House Counsel's Office and all that before, you're, before the nomination is even announced. So you know that you're being vetted. Yes. The call is, I'm going to vet you for this, yes. essentially. Okay. Then what's the time frame? for that time. So it takes, so I received the call in March and the nomination was announced in June and I, the same year, and I was confirmed in September of the same year, which was relatively fast. And in that time between June, excuse me, between March and June, you couldn't tell anybody? No. Oh gosh, that's hard. So what makes it a little bit more difficult is that People, your friend, your, the 500 pounds of paperwork are in addition to tax returns and all that sort of stuff. All your jobs, all your associates. So your friends are being contacted by the FBI and they're, they're saying, we're doing a background check on Kevin O'Malley and what do you know about him? So you're getting incoming from your buddies who are saying, uh, do, you being investigated? Do we need do we need to have a conversation? <laughs> do you need a lawyer <laughs> before I invite you over to the house for drinks? And that happened a lot. There were like fifty or so interviews that that wow. uh, that occurred, and judges that you've tried. So it's it that makes it a little bit dicey. But anyway, so that's it's a little bit like when we're doing investigations for the college. That's you know, exactly what I was thinking. Of. That we're thinking about an award. So. Thinking about an honor. Yeah. So that wears thin after a while. And so, and a lot of your, a lot of our friends, a lot of our mutual friends are more suspicious than that. And so they're saying, well, mm. I don't know about this. <laughs> but eventually then the president takes you off the hook, you announce the nomination, and then the process starts in the Senate. Okay. And then it gets, it's, you're going in one direction with the White House Counsel's Office and the FBI. Everybody's move, trying to move you forward in the hopes that nothing comes up that would be problematic. When you get to the Senate, it divides up a little bit because there there are people who just by knee-jerk reaction are going to be opposed to it. And so that's where it was. There's no political advantage for a Republican senator to want to box around the guy with the Irish name going to Ireland. There there weren't any votes in that, but there wasn't any help either. And so these getting on to the schedule, you go through the Senate confirmation, you go through this, the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and there's a hearing, and they ask questions, and you're, you're, it's just like an oral argument where you're prepared out the wazoo to answer any question about Ireland or Irish history or our relationship with Ireland or any conflict we've had. So you're all primed to do that, just like an oral argument in an appellate court with okay. a bunch of senators sitting in front of you. And then the trick after that is to get on the docket to have a vote. And that's where the gamemanship comes between Democrats and Republicans. 
and who, how many are we going to let through this month or how many are we going to let through this session? And that, that becomes problematic. And you mentioned Democrats and Republicans. I did see that you had support from both Missouri senators, Claire McCaskill on the Democratic side and Roy Blunt on the Republican side. And I know this was not quite 10 years ago, but that just seems like quite an accomplishment. It was, I, I don't know about an accomplishment, but it was unusual even then. I did not know, Sen- I did know Senator McCaskill and she was very helpful for me in this process and was and is a, a really good person. I had never met Senator Blunt. I called and I asked if I could meet him. We met and and he said, we talked about me, we talked about Ireland, we talked about what it would mean to have Missourian as an ambassador to a country like Ireland. And he volunteered to support me and came and testified on my behalf before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I'm grateful to him for that. Sure. Tell us about the call from the White House. I remember it pretty well. The The first person to call me after the after I was told that I the president was going to nominate me for the ambassadorship to Ireland was from the vice president. Vice President Biden called and said, congratulations. And we talked for a while. And while he and I were speaking, another call came in, and so I saw that a message had been left for me. And so after I hung up from the vice president, I clicked on the message, and it was a a voice recording from a gentleman, using the term loosely, that I had put on the witness protection program maybe 20 years earlier. (laughs) And the message was, I can't do do the the, New Jersey (laughs) I can't do the East Coast accent, but it was, God damn, I've never met an ambassador before. So I had the sort of the alpha, fan. I had the alpha and the omega of congratulatory calls. What was your proudest moment in that job? The the people in Ireland, if, for the listeners who have been to Ireland will know what I'm talking about here. The Irish love America. They truly love our country and they love those of us who occupy this country. <laughs> And they treat, they, and I'd been to Ireland before as a tourist, and I was treated well. But there's something reserved for the U.S. ambassador to Ireland. Okay. We were treated, one day we went, in, my wife and I, Dina and I, went into a small town in central Ireland called Roscommon. And the, the kid, they had taken the kids out of school and put them on this, lined the street with American flags and a band. Wow. And the, well, it was just just incredible. Every time, every place we went, everything that we did was so well received by the Irish that it was it was thrilling. Was was there a time or a situation that was really challenging in that position? Yeah, probably the worst. Ireland and the United States are pretty simpatico on policies, although it's a much Ireland's much more liberal country, socially liberal than the United States. And its government is much more business-oriented than the United States. Two, two kind of fascinating things. It's really what makes Ireland, modern Ireland, what it is. Socially, they're way past us on the left. And on and as far as their government is concerned, they're much more pro-business than we are. And the foreign policy is pretty much identical other than as it relates to Israel and Palestine. They would take the Palestinian version of the story rather than the Israeli that we do. The hardest thing for me was there. There was a t- there was a day during the summer of 2000 and f- 
2015 where a number of Irish students died in the United States. There was there is a a visa that's granted to Irish students to come here to study, and it's almost like a rite of passage for that. That each summer, a couple hundred Irish kids come to the U.S. and they fan out and they work for a couple of months, and then they get to travel through the United States. It's called a J-1 visa, and these a bunch of these kids, all 21, went to San Francisco, and they were having a 21st birthday party on they were on the deck of somebody's house, and the deck crashed and a number of students died and a number of students were injured seriously and we had to make sure that all the bodies got back and I thought it was important that the American ambassador attend all the funerals so for you've been to funerals for young people it's they're just tragic and so I and what can I say to the parents of these kids they went off in the completely healthy and so excited about they're three or four months in the U.S. and they come back a coffin. It was pretty. It was sad. We we put a monument in the in, on the embassy grounds remembering that tragedy. If we were to talk about legacy from your time as ambassador to Ireland, what would you say? Creative minds. Tell us about that. I grew up in this large Irish family that Shamrock talked about. And so I never thought about Ireland as a real distant foreign country. My grandparents had the terrible Irish brogue. They were sometimes hard to understand. My aunts and uncles. eh? So Ireland was always a place. It was close. But that's changing now as Ireland has become a really phenomenally successful country. Ireland leads the European Union in GDP, in educational levels. They're more, they're percentage-wise, they're more third-level college-educated people in Ireland there are in any other country in the European Union. They, a thousand American companies are now resident in Ireland, making a lot of money. We use Ireland as our jumping off point to the largest market in the world, the European Union. So they're doing just fine. It, the days where, when I was growing up and my grandparents would send a few dollars back to Ireland. That was the commerce between Ireland and the United States was a few dollars going back or buying tickets to the Irish Derby or something like that. Yeah. Now there's this economic bridge between the two countries. The same, there are about 750 Irish companies in the U.S. doing about the same thing. So they're in good shape. I didn't want this relationship to end as it could with there aren't, Ireland isn't exporting O'Malley's anymore. They don't, people don't need to come from Ireland to the U.S. to live. Okay. And Ireland has developed a world market. They're one of the largest producers of milk, for example, to China. So the relationship isn't the solid relationship that exists between the countries that we see every St. Patrick's Day and which exists between the companies is a little bit more fragile than it used to be. One-sixth of the people born in Ireland today are born of non-Irish parents. My goodness. The Irish just accepted, since the Ukrainian war began, they've accepted about 70,000 Ukrainians in Ireland. Now, Ireland is a country of four and a half million people, about half the size of our state of Missouri. So that's a big, that's a big number. So the Mollies and the Bridgets and the Seamuses, (laughs) you're going to be outnumbered soon. Okay. So we started, that's the preface for Creative Minds. Creative Minds was a program that we started, which is still going on, where we invited American artists, entrepreneurs, hoteliers, restaurateurs, 
animators to come to Ireland to work with young Irish to help them in animation, in songwriting, in the kinds of things that to establish the business and cultural ties so that people growing up in Ireland today will be connected to the United States in a way that they probably wouldn't be otherwise. So that is when I was just in Ireland a few weeks ago and people stopped me about and talked to me about creative minds. So I'm, give, I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Give us an example. Or are they, does every area have a certain program? Is it, are there students? How does so, it work? Oh, so there's a singer songwriter by the name of Ben Folds, for yeah. example. So Ben came to Ireland and put on, we did a show from the ambassador's residence, which would, which was broadcast on national radio live. The president of Ireland was in the audience for the show. And then Ben did a number of master classes around Ireland. So we did that with other musicians, John Prine, Rufus Wainwright, a former St. Louisan, Danny Meyer, a restaurateur of, who's written books on the subject and who's been a leading force in, in fine dining in New York. He has five or six fine dining restaurants and he just started Shake Shack, or not just started, oh, but sure. Shake Shack is part of his deal. So he came and he put on a master class on restaurants and how to manage, try to make a living in restaurants. We had the author, the originator of The Sopranos, David Chase, came and did a class on how did, you know, he wrote a movie called The Sopranos, and he took it to this brand new thing called HBO, yeah. and he couldn't get anybody to buy the movie. An HBO startup thing said, we don't want the movie either, but can you write 13 of these things? Yeah. And so he branched it out and did beginning the Soprano series, in which he told us during the Creative Minds program that the, that Tony Soprano's mother, if you remember her, was his mother. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So that's what we, that's what we did. That's what Creative Minds was like. And it was, we enjoyed doing it. They enjoyed receiving it. And it really, I hope it helps. We won't know for another generation whether it pulls us together. But it's ongoing. Ongoing. That's wonderful. You have returned to St. Louis again after completing your time in Ireland and are back to teaching at the law school, being a member of the community. What things do you enjoy doing now? I, for the last year, I've taught civil procedure at St. Louis U Law School, and that I can't say that was fun. Uh, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it, <laughs> the Penoyer versus Neff after 50 years, uh, it, and the holding is still the same. <laughs> so th that was a lot of work. There, I'm a big fan of our city here. I like St. Louis. It's been my home. It's been very good to me. So I have I volunteered to chair a board of what we call the Port Authority here in St. Louis, which is a which is a the a, a group of people who try to promote St. Louis as a place to be and work. It's one of the few government issues that has a great deal of money. We have $30 million to spend on this project of how do we attract business to St. Louis? How do we connect St. Louisans with the right jobs to make our city really what it ought to be? It's a wonderful place. I've raised my children here. I was raised here. I'd like to have it continue, and this is what we need to do. 
I'm also involved with an Irish charity in Africa where women in Africa have a rough life. The, believe this or not, the largest, the, the biggest cause of death in, in Africa for women is smoke inhalation. Really? Because of the way, the way it, cooking is done. So this Irish charity is working, has ways to help alleviate that and to give mothers and their daughters who have to forage for the wood and stuff a chance at a better life. So those are the couple of things that I'm going to try to do in the coming years to stay out of trouble. You have been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2000. 2000. What did it mean to you at that time to be inducted? I can honestly say it was a huge thrill, egocentric as it sounds. The kind of affirmation that gives after a lifetime of work, that your colleagues, the people who know you the best, think you're okay, is a pretty, I have to admit, it, it was really, for me, it was like going back to your first question, it's a place I belonged. My my journey was I left one thing because I didn't think I'd be very good at it. <laughs> and I wanted to find something that I thought I would be good at. And that was sort of affirmation of that. And that just reminds me of one of the first things, one of the first things you said earlier in this interview, that people are precious. They are. And whether they're your clients or your colleagues or your family members, to be the best we can be as lawyers and problem solvers, I think you do have to remember that. So I appreciate that sentiment. I don't know that it's something that I remember every day, but I think it's no, something I should. Nobody, no, because we see people sometimes not at their best. And nobody's ever called me and hired me because they were having a great <laughs> It's always something bad happened. and But that's not the person. That's just the day. And behind that, conflict, where the issue is, there, there's a real live beating soul that you need to, uh, we need to take a look at. Ambassador O'Malley, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed walking down this path with you, and I know our fellows will enjoy it as well. So I enjoyed being here. Thank you. See you, Amy. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.